I remember that years ago when I was working the night shift and loading planes for UPS, uh, that the crew that I was working with came under some suspicion of having stolen something. Apparently, something in the system had come up missing, a package that was, was being shipped, and uh, UPS security was trying to track down the people who may have been involved in handling that particular package, and apparently my crew was one of the crews that uh, was involved in either loading or unloading the particular package that came up missing. And so my coworkers and I were interviewed one by one individually by uh, someone from the UPS security group. So far as I know, nothing was ever pinned on any of my crew, and so far as I know, none of my crew was involved of, of any theft on that occasion. But one thing that does stand out in my mind uh, was the response of one of the, the young women who was on my crew. She was probably, I don't know, 21, 22, something, uh, something to that effect. And uh, she said that during the interrogation, she felt so bad, so scared, that she felt like just, just confessing anyways, confessing to something that she had not actually done. She told me once that she herself had been caught shoplifting and uh, had been apparently caught and had been so frightened, so scared. And uh, she knew that she had done something wrong and she knew that she had gotten caught. And evidently, her mind was making the connection between this time of being under interrogation for something that she hadn't done and feeling the pressure kind of ramped up. She felt like she ought to just confess and get out of the hot seat, so to speak. Let's just confess it, and then I'll feel better and move on. Now, tonight, I wanted to conclude our examination of the counsel of Job's friends by looking at a third aspect of their counsel to him. And again, our time in, in looking at these, uh, these uh, middle chapters in the book of Job is far from exhaustive. We're just kind of trying to trace out some themes. And so over the past couple of weeks, we considered their weaponization of proverbial wisdom. We also saw their accusations of, of wickedness, both general accusations against Job simply as, as a man. Mankind is sinful. You're a man, therefore you're sinful. And then actually specific accusations of ways in which he had sinned. And tonight we conclude our examination of the counsel of Job's friends by looking at a third aspect of their counsel to Job, which can be summed up in these words. Repent and be blessed. This topic is somewhat the, the corollary of what we discussed last week in the sermon related to charge of wickedness. And so there's going to be some overlap of themes from what we're talking about tonight to what we talked about last week. But I hope that it will prove instructive nevertheless. And in and of itself, the counsel of Job's friends in this regard is very true. When we repent of sin, we are blessed. There's great blessing for those who truly do repent of their sins and find forgiveness from the Lord. I tried to point out last week that even though, though we know that ultimately Job's friends proved to be wrong and incurred the Lord's anger, this does not prove that they were godless men. Though they were wrong in much of what they said, the reason why they were wrong was not so much for the things that they said. Much of what they said was actually true. The reason they were wrong was mostly 
because of their application of the truth, rather their misapplication of the truth, and not the content of the words of what they were saying. A lot of the content was, was good and excellent so far as it went. And so it is here as well. And let's look at some prominent examples of this. And so let's first look to, uh, to Job chapter 5, and we'll, we'll read verses 8 through 27. This is, uh, this is Eliphaz uh, speaking to Job, and he gives, he gives Job counsel. Basically, if I were in your shoes, this is what I would do. Verse 8, Job chapter 5. But as for me, I would seek God, and I would place my cause before God, who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields, so that he sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the plotting of the shrewd, so that their hands cannot attain success. He captures the wise by their own shrewdness, and the advice of the cunning is quickly thwarted. By day they meet with darkness and grope at noon as in the night, but he saves from the sword of their mouth and the poor from the hand of the mighty. So the helpless has hope, and unrighteousness must shut its mouth. Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he inflicts pain and gives relief. He wounds and he also heals. From six troubles he will deliver you. Even in seven, evil will not touch you. In famine he will redeem you from death, and in war from the power of the sword. You will be hidden from the scourge of the tongue, and you will not be afraid of violence when it comes. You will laugh at violence and famine, and you will not be afraid of wild beasts. For you will be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field will be at peace with you. You will know that your tent is secure, for you will visit your abode and fear no loss. You will know also that your descendants will be many, and your offspring as the grass of the earth. You will come to the grave in full vigor, like the stacking of grain in its season. Behold this, we have investigated it, and so it is. Hear it, and know for yourself. There's a lot of good that's here. The uh, Scottish theologian James Durham commented on this text by saying there is much solid and sound divinity here. Right? There's a lot that is good and solid here. He says, but look upon it with these caveats. One, to beware Eliphaz's aim in it, of bearing in on Job that he was a hypocrite. Number two, we would not expound these temporal premises according to the letter, but stretch them in application to spiritual peace, as that wherein they mainly have their accomplishments to believers, though in primitive times even temporal blessings and benefits followed a righteous way of living and temporal curses and judgments a sinful life. In other words, there's a lot, lot that's good here, but number one, watch out for what he's doing. He's pointing at Job as a hypocrite, Job was not a hypocrite. Secondly, beware of taking these promises in a temporal sense as opposed to a spiritual sense. In, in ancient times, in Old Testament times, many times it was true that you live a godly life, you have earthly blessings. Just, just look at the promises of God to the people of Israel. Like, think Deuteronomy promises, right? You live godly, you're going to be blessed. Your offspring... Uh, will be blessed, you'll be blessed in the field, blessed in the, the birthing stall of your calves, and, and so on. And, uh, and Durham cautions us that 
we need to recognize that in the time in which we live, these the blessings which, which come to God's people are mostly spiritual blessings. And we need to note here, in, in considering these, these words of Eliphaz in chapter 5, verse 13 is quoted by Paul, 1 Corinthians 3.19. And Paul follows that with a quote from Psalm 94.11. And just to give some idea of what's going on in the context, here Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 3.18-21. He says, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, and here's Job 5.13, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Again, this is Psalm 94.11, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then, let no one boast in men. And it's worth noting here that Paul quotes the words of Eliphaz there as biblically authoritative, just in the same fashion as he would appeal to Moses or to, to one of the other prophets. So he does here in 1 Corinthians 3, appealing to Job 5.13, the words of Eliphaz. And so we can see that Eliphaz spoke truth, and his words are not to be lightly done away with. And again, do not his words in verse 17 Ring true. Eliphaz says, Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Now just compare those words with Psalm 94 12. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, whom you teach out of your law. Compare with Proverbs 3 11 and 12. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord, or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Or again, compare them with Hebrews 12, 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Right? This, this man is, is not a fool. This man knows a lot of biblical truth. He has great wisdom. Consider what he says in verse 22. Verse 22, he's speaking about the man who does seek God. He says, you will laugh at violence and famine, and you will not be afraid of the wild beasts. How close is the sentiment expressed by Eliphaz there to what we find in Psalm 112, verse 7, describing the man who fears the Lord and delights greatly in his commandments. Psalm 112, 7 says, He will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Again, there's a lot of biblical truth here. We can't just write this man Eliphaz off as ungodly. Or... Consider the words of Bildad in Job chapter 8. Let's, let's flip over there to, to chapter 8. Let's see what Bildad says. Let's look at, at verses 5 through 7. Bildad says, If you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Though your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will increase greatly. And then look down later in the chapter, verses 20 through 22. Lo, God will not reject a man of integrity, nor will he support the evildoers. He will fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no longer. Bildad's counsel is essentially, Job, seek God, implore his compassion, and things will get better. Now, it's certainly true that things 
will get better. But that guarantee only extends to spiritual realities, right? But Bildad is at least making some right assumptions that if you, if you repent, if you implore God for mercy, think, things are going to get better. What he thought, though, the mistake he made was that things are going to get better in your earthly life right now. The other mistake he made was, Job, you've sinned in some particular way, some way in which you need to implore the mercy of God. Let's look at chapter 11, the words of of Zophar, 11, verses 13 through 20. Zophar says, If you would direct your heart right and spread out your hand to him, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and do not let wickedness dwell in your tents, then indeed you could lift up your face without moral defect, and you would be steadfast and not fear, for you would forget your trouble. As waters have passed by, you would remember it. Your life would be brighter than noonday. Darkness would be like the morning. Then you would trust because there is hope, and you would look around and rest securely. You would lie down, and none would disturb you, and many would entreat your favor. But the eyes of the wicked will fail, and there will be no escape for them, and their hope is to breathe their last. And so Zophar, again, encourages him to direct his heart to the Lord, and then things will get better. He says, um, verse 17, your life would be brighter than noonday. Darkness would be like morning. Now, doesn't that sound a whole lot like Psalm 32, those words that we sang this morning? Behold, how blessed is the man who has forgiven Ben, for whom transgressions have been cleared Covered is his sin, blessed is the man for whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit is no taint of insincerity. Right? You, you, you turn away from evil, things get better. Now, in and of itself, again, this is not bad advice. But again, the problem was the underlying assumptions. Underlying assumptions, one, that if you're right with God, your temporal life, your earthly life will be good. Bad assumption number two, Job, you are a sinner. You're hiding your wickedness. You need to make it plain. You need to confess it to the Lord. Come on, out with it, and repent and seek God's mercy. Let's look to the words of of Eliphaz in chapter 22, verses 21 and following. This is uh, 22. uh, We'll read verse 21 through the end of the chapter. Eliphaz says, Yield now and be at peace with him. Thereby good will come to you. Please receive instruction from his mouth and establish his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove unrighteousness from your tent and place your gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brooks, then the Almighty will be your gold and choice silver to you. For then you will delight in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. You will pray to him. He will hear you and you will pay your vows. You will also decree a thing, and it will be established for you, and light will shine on your ways. When you are cast down, you will speak with confidence, and the humble person he will save. He will deliver one who is not innocent, and he will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. Again, the, the assumption, the message is, is much the same. You repent, you turn to the Lord, all will be well with you. Now, what did Job have to say 
in response to, to all of this. Let's look at a, at a smattering of some of what Job says. Let's flip back to Job chapter 7. Look at verses 20 and 21. Job 7.20, he says, Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I am a burden to myself? Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I lie down in the dust and you will seek me, but I will not be. Let's look at Job chapter 9. Then Job answered, In truth, I know that this is so, but how can a man be right before God? If one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. Wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm? It is God who removes the mountains. They know not how, when he overturns them in his anger. Who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. Who commands the sun not to shine and sets a seal upon the stars. Who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea? Who makes the bear, Orion, and Pleiades, and the chambers of the south? Who does great things, unfathomable, and wondrous works without number? Were he to pass by me, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Were he to snatch away, who could restrain him? Who could say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him crouch the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him and choose my words before him? For though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I could not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he bruises me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to get my breath, but saturates me with bitterness If it is a matter of power, behold, he is the strong one. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. I am guiltless. I do not take notice of myself. I despise my life. It is all one, therefore, I say. He destroys the guiltless and the wicked. If the scourge kills suddenly, he mocks the despair of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked, He covers the faces of the judges. If it is not he, then who is it? Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away and they see no good. They slip by like reed boats, like an eagle that swoops on its prey. Though I say I will forget my complaint, I will leave off my sad countenance and be cheerful. I am afraid of all my pains. I know that you will not acquit me. I am accounted wicked. Why then should I toil in vain? If I should wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you would plunge me into the pit and my clothes would abhor me. For he is not a man as I am that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. Let him remove his rod from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him. But I am not like that in myself. Now what we find here, again, we're not going to work through the verses bit by bit, but broadly we can say that Job knows that he's a sinner. right? He knows that he's fallen. But 
he is innocent, so he thinks, and so he is, of having done anything specific to bring these calamities and hardships into his life. He, his words indicate that he feels himself to be innocent, but yet he thinks that if he stands before God, that God will judge him as wicked. Let's look at what he says in Job 23. Chapter 23, Job replied, Even today my complaint is rebellion. His hand is heavy despite my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn the words which he would answer and perceive what he would say to me. Would he contend with me by the greatness of his power? No, surely he would pay attention to me. There the upright would reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. He turns on the right, and I cannot see him, but he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. But he is unique, and who can turn him? And what his soul desires, that he does. For he performs what is appointed for me, and many such decrees are with him. Therefore, I would be dismayed at his presence. When I consider, I am terrified of him. It is God who has made my heart faint, and the Almighty who has dismayed me. But I am not silenced by the darkness, nor the deep gloom which covers me. Now notice there, especially verses 10 through 12. If you look there, Job is very clear in asserting his integrity, that, he is, that he's walked before the Lord. And indeed, that's, that's what the beginning of the book states, that Job was an, was an upright and godly man. You see that repeated multiple times in chapters 1 and 2. And here you have the confession from Job's own lips that God knows the way he takes. When God tries me, I'll come forth as gold. My foot is held fast to the path. I've not turned aside. I've not departed from his commands. I've treasured the words, uh, the commands of his lips uh, more than my necessary food. But Job's friends, meanwhile, are calling him to repent. Job claims innocence. It's almost like when a parent shows up and there's been an altercation between a couple of children and one child accuses the other of having done something. The signs seem to indicate that indeed that accused child has done something but the accused child claims innocence. And on top of that, the child in question is generally a truthful child, generally a well-behaved child. So what do you do if you're the parent in that situation? You heard something go down. Someone's pointing the finger. Someone's saying, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. And the one who's saying that has a generally good reputation. What do you do? Do you keep on pushing and pressuring until you get... A guilty confession out of the one? Or do you just let it go and observe and assume that perhaps things are not what they appear to be? Now, sometimes due to great pressure, we can be tempted to confess or actually confess to things that we haven't done just to get the pressure 
off of ourselves, right? My my friend there at UPS wanted, wanted to just confess because she was in the hot seat there at the interrogator. And you hear about this, right, that, uh, that uh, different ones who've been accused of crimes will... Uh, will be kind of under the hot seat and the police will be pushing all the right buttons and maybe they'll confess to something that they haven't done. But Job was not willing to do so, right? His friends are, are pushing and pushing and pushing and he himself is broken and desperate and hurting and his friends keep on pushing and say, repent, just repent, just repent and it'll get better. Problems will stop. But Job held out under this great pressure and maintained his integrity. In other words, he maintained his truth-telling by refusing to do what they wanted him to do, to just confess to something so that all of this would, would clear up and go away. One commentator described the situation this way. He says, to call on a penitent believer to repent of sins he's not aware of is to pressure him to compromise his integrity. The well-calibrated conscience informed and convicted by the Spirit of God, will prompt the believer to repent day by day of the sins which he or she is made aware of. But to press this believer to repent of sins he has not committed is a grotesque violation of his integrity. And we need to be careful here. It's important for us to grasp this because of at least two reasons. One is that we need to be wary of pressuring people to repent of sins which they do not perceive themselves to be guilty of and sins which we, for our part, have no certain knowledge that they are, in fact, guilty. We maybe assume they're guilty and turn into Job's friends, turn up the heat, try to extract the confession. If they don't think they're guilty and we don't know for sure that they are guilty, then we need to be careful because we don't want to fall into the same mentality of Job's friends who were urging repentance and then promising that all would be well if Job would just repent and do what they told him to do. If we do that, then we're assuming things that we do not know, and we are promising things that we cannot guarantee. We don't want to be the ones to apply false pressure and promise false rewards. Don't want to do that. And secondly, we need to be aware of this so that we are not beguiled by those who would put such pressure on us when we're not guilty. Now, obviously, we can all think of sins of which we need to repent. Some sins, however, someone might try to put on you and urge you to repent of. You're not guilty of that particular sin. And point is we need to hold fast to our integrity and hold fast to our innocence when in fact we are innocent because if we confess to something that we're not guilty of we're actually lying right we're, we're giving up our integrity and just to give fair warning one of the times in which you may need to hold on to your integrity in this fashion is when you're listening to a sermon in church and so uh, just for instance in his book why johnny can't preach uh, t david gordon wrote a number of years ago he said, some of the neo-Puritans have apparently determined that the purpose and essence of Christian preaching is to persuade people that they do not, in fact, believe. The subtitle of each of their sermons could accurately be, I know you think you are a Christian, but you are not. This brand of preaching constantly suggests that if a person does not love attending church 
always uh, look forward to reading the Bible or family worship and prayer, then the person is probably not a believer. And uh, T. David Gordon goes on, he says, the hearer falls into one of two categories. One category of listener assumes that the preacher is talking about someone else, and he rejoices, as did the Pharisee over the tax collector. He rejoices to hear the other guy getting straightened out. He goes on, another category of listener eventually capitulates and says, okay, I'm not a believer, have it your way. And the point is, is that this, this kind of preaching helps, helps nobody, right? It doesn't, it doesn't help true believers who are, who are weak in faith and need to see the sufficiency of Christ and why and how they should be turning to him in their weakness. And it doesn't help unbelievers either. Maybe those who are pharisaical actually need to hear the law and the gospel expounded faithfully rather than this type of theme of, I know you think you are a Christian, but you're not. Now, now to be fair, sometimes, sometimes those kind of texts come up, and sometimes that maybe needs to be the title of a sermon. I know you think you're a Christian, but you're not. Jesus says, Matthew seven twenty one that there will be many who come to him on the last day and say, Lord, Lord, and he says that not everyone who comes to him and says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Obviously, we need to be guarding against self-deception, but... At the same time, faithful preaching should not be twisting the integrity of believers to say, okay, you're right, I'm not a believer. And uh, I, I grew up in a church where you know, every week there was, there was an invitation, and not only an invitation to come to salvation, but an invitation to rededicate your life to Christ. And what week could you not rededicate your life to Christ, right? We all need to be, as it were, continually rededicating our life to Christ. This is daily repentance, right? This is not a weekly thing. This is an hourly thing, a minutely thing. We need to be constantly uh, returning to the Lord in, in daily repentance. But we don't need to have our integrity assaulted as if we were not true believers. Now, I'll leave, I'll leave it to others. Perhaps you would be the best judges to judge as to whether I myself have been such a preacher as described by T. David Gordon. But what I will say is that whether the preacher is me or someone else, don't let them force you and call you to repent where no repentance is necessary, as was the case of Job, right? They're, they're twisting his arm to repent. He says, hey guys, look here, I've, I've walked with the Lord in faithfulness and integrity. You're wrong. And so, by all means, repent of those things of which you know you're guilty. Repent of sin. Turn to Christ. Repent and be blessed, right? Job's friends had a, had a lot right, and we've, we've seen that, comparing Scripture to Scripture. But nevertheless, hold on to your integrity. Hold on to the Lord. And do so knowing that he will bring everything out right in the end. Let's join in saying with Job, as he says in verses 11 and 12, let's live in such a way that this can be true of us. Job 23, 11 and 12, My foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. May God grant that that be true of each one of us here. Let's pray. Our Father, we... Thank you for the truth of your word, that great blessing does indeed come to those who repent of wickedness. Lord, we pray that you would give us consciences that are informed by your word and convicted by your spirit, that we may know the difference between those areas in which we have stumbled and sinned and fallen short, 
in those areas in which we are actually walking faithfully with you, not sinlessly, not perfectly, but nevertheless faithfully. Lord, we ask that you would help us to know the difference between the two, to hold fast to our integrity, and also to be quick to confess and quick to repent when we're convicted by your word and by your spirit. We pray that you give us tender hearts, hearts full of love to you, hearts that love your ways and love your word and love your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.